Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 164 with my guest, Andy Norell. This is Andy's third time on the podcast. Uh, Andy is a steel drummer, um, performer, educator, pedagogue, um, general wealth of information around the history of the instrument uh, and its music and its culture. Uh, I had a good time chatting with Andy a little bit about the origins of the history of the steel drum as it pertains to sort of uh, Trinidad's particular history with, uh, you know, colonization and, and oppression. So uh, neither of us are historians, so most of this is anecdotal, so take that for what it's worth. But I hope you enjoy this conversation. I always enjoy chatting with Andy. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Andy Norell. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. You know, it's uh, no, it's it's not Labriate, but uh, it's surprising uh, how close to normal things are here. I was you know? just thinking about. I mean, <clears throat> it, it dawned on me as I was logging on. It's like, oh yeah, Annie's in in France, and we just the U.S. just got put on that travel ban list to the EU. Yeah, and pardon my ignorance, but Saint Lucia's not. Is that what what territory is that? Saint Lucia's an independent, independent country. Okay. Yeah, it was uh, before it was independent. It was British. Got it. Okay. But the uh, British and French fought over Saint Lucia, and they exchanged control of it fourteen times. They each had it seven times in the course of the of the fight. Well, like I would love. Years. I want to get into this. Is, I'm glad that you sort of like just went deep on some very specific knowledge on on some of this stuff because it's it's literally what I want to talk to you about today. If you're all right with this. Um, this is your third time back on the podcast, and I'm really, really, really grateful for this. I, I, I saw, sadly, too late that you were on the Rangers Corner with Andre uh, and the, those those uh, those fellas, and um, I'm really bummed I missed it. But it's I've noticed a real – go ahead, sorry. No, I was just saying it was fun. Yeah, I mean, those, those guys, that <laughs> Rangers Corner thing, and Andre, just the way they're all – I mean, I like Quint Rose. Was Quint Rose on that call as well? I'm not – I don't think so. Maybe uh, at some point, but he didn't. He didn't talk. And then there's the no. the Ramage. The, the Ramage was there, and Khan was yeah. there. And, and then there's the the Ramage competitions that have been happening online, which have been awesome, like Concordus and Andre, and all like to see all them play. And um, anyway, it just seems like there's a really great chatter happening specifically right now. Maybe more so than I'm used to seeing, um, and I'm really psyched about it. But there's also a big conversation right now happening in the world. Um, you know, it's been happening for a long time, but in really intense ways following the, the murder of George Floyd, um, around oppression and systemic oppression and what, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like, what it does to societies, what are the ramifications hundreds of years later, how do we fix it? Those sorts of things. And you posted a, a long list of books and just resources about that, that you've come across. Um, immediately triggered for me uh, when I was in Trinidad as a student, I took with me just because I was a nerd. I'm like, I'm going to take a Trinidad book with me. And I, I read um, The Loss of El Dorado by V.S. Nepal and was sort of like, that was the first time for me where I was in a country reading about some sort of historical context around what was happening. And it dawned on me then as, as a 19 year old that, you know, Sir Walter Raleigh um, had a hand in the steel drums, whether he knew it or not. And it's, for me, like, it's fascinating to think about this stuff. And the steel drum in particular was born out of the very oppression and systemic governmental sort of oppression that we're all sort of, that's in the air right now. And I'm kind of mm -hmm. curious just to bounce off of that um, book list that you have and just maybe this little prompt I'm setting up. I think a lot of students, myself included, went through high school um, playing in steel bands, sort of, 
even though we're close to the historical uh, catalysts that brought this to us, relatively speaking, like compared to the violin or the piano, maybe, um, it somehow is dis- disjointed from the historical context from which it came. I could play in a steel drum band in a high school and have zero idea that, you know, Cliff Alexis was beat over the head by a cop in Trinidad for playing pan as a kid, you know. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, like, it's important to me for folks to know that. And I'm curious if you can sort of walk me through, maybe we can do it together. Like, what is the historical context behind the steel band and the steel drum? We, we talked a little bit about Anthony Williams, but we jumped to sort of like how he influenced the panorama. But I kind of want to go back before before any of this and talk a little bit about the mm-hmm. complexities of what, you know, like you said, the British fought over St. Lucia 14 times or something. Like, Trinidad changed hands from the Dutch, the Spanish, the French, like plantations needed to be run and the colonizers at the time weren't good at it. So they brought the, and then the indentured servitude from like, it's so messy. And I'm just kind of curious. I know in an hour, an hour and 10 minutes, it's impossible to do that (laughs) thoroughly. Mm -hmm. But for you, I'm kind of curious to hear what your thoughts are on, on the sort of context behind what brought the steel band uh, as it relates to, you know, oppression and that sort of stuff. That was very long-winded, Andy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ooh, that was a long question. Yeah, yeah. I know, it's, I know it's thorny. And again, like, there's a lot of ways to talk about this stuff, but I kind of want to keep it specific yeah. to the steel band in particular. Right. Well, you know, first of all, just to get off your specific question a little bit, yeah. Um, I just want to mention, I actually read all those books. I didn't. I didn't come across. Oh yeah, that, that was I, that was clear to I, me. I I didn't. <laughs> okay. I didn't. It didn't. Dawn, it didn't even dawn on me that you would just like. Here's a list I, of books I've I, never even read. I wasn't going to recommend books that I hadn't read just yeah. because I know that they're cool. You know, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. It's like no, this is you know. I had a bunch of books here. to recommend too, but I, I truthfully I've only ever read the V.S. Nepal book. I'm like obsessed with quantum mechanics, so the vast majority of my books are like about quantum entanglement. Like uh-huh. not even related to steel drums, so it's like it didn't feel right to post those up in addition to the V.S. Nepal book. So yeah. um, I just left it to you. You did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of another interesting book. You know, I, you ever read a um, Coming of Age in the Universe? Mm-mm. Who's it? Who uh, it's it. Timothy Ferris. I'm going to say. Okay, but I'm not sure. I'll write that down. It's it's a it's a book about the it's a history of of how we got to where we are now in, in terms of our understanding of where we are in the universe, mm. but from scratch, from the point where we didn't know anything, when they were just guys were just staying up all night looking at the stars, trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And uh, now you, you go to school, you learn all this, this well, stuff, you know, but uh, <laughs> theoretically, <laughs> is, theoretically, you're supposed to have learned it. I don't know. This is attained knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, you know, I think back to your question, for me, just to put it in a larger perspective, we have this, this incredible, uh, rich culture of music. If we look at, at the African experience in the Americas, you know, this is like the, the source of so much incredible music, you know, and it's all over the country. You know, just in the U.S., you know, the African-American experience, the Africans' experience in America led to spirituals and gospel and R&B, and jazz, and Motown, and everything we know as popular music in America, and rap, and hip-hop, and all this, you know. Um, and and that's just us, you know. That's just, and I didn't cover I didn't say every part of it, you know. Then you, you go south, and, and it's just every country, 
you find it, it, something different happened. It was a different mix of Europeans with a different mix of Africans and whoever else came in, in, in all these different islands. And each one produced a unique musical culture. You know, you look at Cuba and the vast richness of Cuban music. And then you go over to Haiti and it's huge. And the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. And that's a huge uh, swath of, of Afro-Caribbean music right there, mm-hmm. you know. And you head down to the, the French Caribbean and, and Martinique and Guadeloupe. It's just an amazing musical culture. And Trinidad, the whole calypso and steel band music. And it's all... You know, and re- I skipped re- uh, Jamaica. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> these are the, the big hubs. Lest you we know? forget about Jamaica. Yeah, and and Brazil is is a hundred different styles of music. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 then you have the rest of South America, and uh, I mean, every country has a unique musical culture, and it all has to do with the Africans. You know, um, you know, Ven- the Venezuelan music that'll really get you is Afro-Venezuelan music. You know, the Peruvian music that's going to get you is the Afro-Peruvian music. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's like that everywhere, mm-hmm. you know. Um, they used to have, you know, Oscar Stagnaro and Paquito de Rivera, they were big on that. Mm. Always talking about all, because Oscar was from Peru, and he knew all this Afro music from all over South America. Mm. And so they used to talk about that stuff a lot. And they used to give um, Dario Eskenazi shit because he was from Argentina where they didn't have Africans. And so Argent- there's no Afro- Afro-Argentinian music. <laughs> you know, they got the tango. <laughs> and uh, that was <laughs> whereas in Peru they had black people and so Oscar right, felt right. He, had a, he had a superior... Uh, background and just to state musical culture just to state the obvious for folks um maybe who are just learning about like like the the african diaspora in the caribbean at least as far as trinidad is concerned was slave driven like slavery driven um you know plant you know they didn't you know africans didn't just come to trinidad just for the hell of it like Mm -hmm. it was they were they were brought here um and so the and the when you mentioned like spirituals and hymns, um, a lot of the way those came out, if I'm not mistaken, Andy, you please correct me here, is it was a mode of communication amongst each other, oftentimes using slang and innuendo. Calypso music, by its definition, is innuendo based, like in the way that it's often politically motivated. A lot of slang terms that politicians might not understand, but everybody in the neighborhood does, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a way to hide a form of communication from your oppressor um, and how that then became, like you said, popular music in the United States. Like it's <laughs> in such a short amount of time um, to me, that is interesting to sort of plot those data points along the way, you know, just thinking, like I said at the beginning, Walter Raleigh, you know, coming to Trinidad and forcing people to look for gold, Christopher Columbus doing the same thing. You know, they were looking mm-hmm. for gold in Venezuela. Trinidad was just a doormat, you know, to get to the Orinoco River. Hmm. But it's just crazy to think that like those those decisions I don't know. It's just how to untie all that from, you know, detangle all that from our history is really tricky. Yeah, and you know, I mean I think, you know, with with Trinidad each of those I wanted to mention those other places Please. because they each have their own story. Mm-hmm. This is not one story like what happened to African people in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. It's it's different. Every every country, every island had their own experience. And um Trinidad had a, a relatively 
shorter experience with slavery than some of the other islands. And, uh, and then they brought in, uh, so they, they brought in Africans kind of late in the game. And then they ended slavery and they, they had another system called indentured servitude where they brought over Indians and Chinese who were worked as if like slaves for seven years and then they'd earn their freedom. Mm -hmm. They were paying for their passage essentially mm -hmm. was what the, 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 uh, the way the British framed the deal. Yeah, that's indentured servitude is a time-honored tradition. That one, you know, it's, that <laughs> yeah. one's been used. Well, you had to you had to find some kind of replacement for slavery. That, you know, it's like we in America they found sharecropping. You know, it was the same thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, and uh, and Jim Crow. So here, you know, and and then you know there were Trinidad also had. I believe there were free African West Africans who also came over later. Hmm. So not everyone is dis, dis descended from slaves. In, in that sense, and uh, it's it's a different and unique history, but the colonial powers were what they were. You know, it was like uh, basically we're here to govern these people so and make them work for us so we can make profit on on this thing. Interestingly enough, in the history of the Caribbean, you know what the most um, in way back what the most profitable colony was in all of the the when you consider the U.S. colonies and the whole Caribbean. Hmm. It was Haiti. Okay. Haiti was the highest producing, highest profit colony in the whole region. It outproduced all the 13 colonies. And what was their main, was it sugar? or Everything. Everything grew there. <laughs> it was just, it was called the jewel of the French Empire. Wow, okay. And Good they man. destroyed it. They fought, they, they destroyed it to keep, you know. They, uh, that's a, a longer story. That, that, that'll be a sidetrack. Mm -hmm. But uh, Adam uh, Hochschild wrote a really good book called. He, he, all his books are amazing. Okay. And Adam uh, one of them, one of the the one everybody knows is called King Leopold's Ghost. It's about the Congo. But uh, this one is called Bury the Chains, and it's about the uh, the fight to end slavery. And you learn a lot of history of the of slavery in the Caribbean from from this book. Uh, it's interestingly enough, he, he portrays it as a, as having started with a dozen people in a room in London, who said they who decided they were going to bring down slavery, and they just they invented uh, grassroots organizing. Whoa. These people it took it took about forty years, but they actually succeeded in doing it. Well, so I mean, it's an amazing story. I, I'm, I'm curious. Um, so, just to talk about like trying to empathize with with uh, if I were a colonizer like putting myself in the mindset of a British government at the time slavery is freed and or slavery is ended in Trinidad right you have a population of people that have been historically oppressed and abused and now they're essentially free so I could imagine the fear that would be running rampant in the government so you then implement measures like banning public gatherings banning certain types of music played in public I've heard the sort sort of like the 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 banning of music in Trinidad as being like the main one of the big catalysts that then sort of pushed people into the discovery mode of you know transferring rhythms from you know uh, traditional drums to bottles and spoons, which then landed on um, biscuit tins, which then led to the steel drums. Um, can you talk a little bit about the moments leading up to? I've always heard it anecdotally, and I don't know the exact date, but like what was the sort of climate in Trinidad leading up to the moment when the British government decided to sort of put a crackdown on public gatherings and stuff like that? 
No, I'm not an expert on that. I'm not either. I thought that's you were going to ask me to get, to get specific about the birth of Pan, which I could talk more yeah, about. Yeah, well, sorry. That's, is, well, that's my – that's my yes, that is my main question. And as I've heard the birth of Pan, to me, I've heard it tangentially or anecdotally connected to this moment of like the British government banning stuff. So I'm not a historian. I'm just <laughs> asking based on what little anecdotes I have. Yeah, I'm not sure which date we're talking about there, so uh, I'm not I'm not going to venture to guess. I, yeah. I forgot. You it's know, like eighteen. It's I want to say like the late 1850s or something like that. It was yeah. in that ballpark. Sounds right. You know, and uh, you know, basically, you know, I mean, this, you, you know, they had they had the city in the days when Pan was born. They had the the city pretty well segregated. You know, they had like a. a the, the, there was only one bridge across the dry river and everybody east of the dry river up up in Laventil and Belmont and all that stuff, they were blocked from coming in. They could be controlled from coming into town. And you had to, to, to go over this one bridge. You know where Desperados were? were uh, Cadiz Road. Mm-hmm. I've never been right up there, there, but I know of it, yeah. The, no, 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 not, not the uh, not the old oh, place up oh, there, okay. up in the hills, where they were rehearsing down by the savannah. Okay, they were rehearsing at the corner of the east side of the savannah, and mm-hmm. I think it's called Cadiz Road. Okay, all right, and it comes down down from the hills, and there's, that, there's a bridge over the dry river right mm-hmm. there, and there are pan yards right next to it, and uh, I believe that's where the bridge was. That's mm-hmm. what I've been told, and uh, it was like a penny to go over the bridge, mm-hmm. and but they also gave them a measure of control. And that's why they call all that area behind the bridge. Right. Which is the title of your <laughs> That's of what it came to be known as. My right? introduction to you as a player was from your album behind that was titled Behind the Bridge. Yeah. So it refers to that whole area to the mm-hmm. right side, you know, of the dry river. And uh you know Pan was born it wasn't it, it, it it's amazing it didn't just happen in one place it didn't just happen with one person you know it just sort of happened simultaneously a bunch of people got into it i, I think kim johnson's book has some amazing photos kim uh, oh you don't know about this book yet I'm, yeah I, i've heard it's out of print but uh, i'm just writing uh, it down just it's called the illustrated story of pan and it's and it's coming a uh, second edition's coming out in the next 6 months or something mm-hmm. like that he's trying to get it printed now he had a crowdfunding to get it going. And uh, so, and it has one be incredible, he, Kim got everybody to, from all over the world to send him pictures. He had close to 2,000 photos, I think, wow. to choose from. And uh, some wonderful photos of the early days of Pan, before there were any notes on the pans, just guys beating, beating biscuit tins and pots mm-hmm. and pans and, and uh, just anything. And... Uh, Bands we never heard of, like the Gonzalez Rhythm Section and stuff like that. You know, that didn't 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 become actual steel bands that we know. But some of the steel bands that we do know go all the way back. Well, you mentioned you mentioned that the days the steel, of rhythm. You mentioned when we were talking about your pan, the, the development of the Panorama from since 1962. That like you, you mentioned that the steel band is first a rhythmic ensemble and sec, like and then second became a pitched ensemble. Like the the initial steel bands were rhythm sections. That right. you know developed into what we know now as the pitched sort of yeah tenor. definitely and uh, you know the first thing was kind of the, the natural differentiation in pitch in a rhythmic situation where you'd mm-hmm. have some instruments higher pitched and some and then some bass you know just like we have bigger and smaller drums 
Neville Jules and I took a walk around downtown Port of Spain, and he pointed over to a, a place over by the Dry River. He said, that, right over there, he said, that's where I first heard Pan. And what he was talking about was just guy beating biscuit tin, mm. you know, when he says, I heard Pan, mm-hmm. you know. But he already, he called it that already, yeah. you know. Yeah. And uh, so... You know, and and the social conditions were such that you know we're okay. We're still back to uh, the, the colonials are in charge. It's just white people in charge. It's they're British. Uh, they they act all superior. They they they're trying to educate us poor Africans and stuff like that. You know, like Sparrow. This was quite a bit later, but you ever heard the song "Dan Is the Man"? Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> it's it, it makes. I don't know if you'd ever listen closely to the words, but isn't it, it makes pa- fun of. Isn't that the panorama tune that uh, uh, that North Stars played? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's a it's a it's a it's mocking. The whole song mocks the English educational system by uh, talking about the the first grade readers that they gave these kids in Trinidad to read. Now, there, it's what's funny about it is he we read a lot of the same stuff in the u.s mm-hmm. at that time yeah, you know yeah. so all the most of the titles are just like you know yeah we know that too <laughs> you Dan know? Is the man wink the and blinking and nod and the yeah. cow jumped over the moon right. and all this kind of stuff it's good know? night moon now now yeah. good night moon is the now popular <laughs> and Leah, they some they lived in a wooden shoe and all this kind yeah. of stuff yeah. so um but um the these were the the these were the poor kids like socially these were on the whole ladder of trinidad society you, these were not like the middle class blacks or the educated blacks these were the kids who were poor and had less education and and tended to be only african not indian not chinese they weren't involved in the beginning mm. it was a black thing and they were the, the the guys in the steel band were f- from a social caste that was basically seen as a bunch of tough guys and gangs, and uh, that's what how they saw themselves, I, and that's how yeah, <laughs> everybody to, else saw them. I don't want to interrupt you, but there's something that has come up several times in my discussions, uh, just talking about similar stuff to Quint Rose. I made I made a sort of I quipped jokingly about like, man, it's like. It's weird to me that I feel like as a white guy, I feel oddly more comfortable in a steel band than I do sometimes in my own contemporary music world. Um, mm-hmm. Even though I, by and large, traffic more often in the sort of Carnegie Hall so percussion world. Um, and Quint, like without stopping, he's like, "Well, it's not a race thing; it's a class thing. Like steel bands have historically been like lower class, and there's a there's just a the culture of lower classes is." different than the culture of the middle and like as you go higher and it was interesting to me to think about the steel band in that light rather than thinking of it as a race thing purely you know um Mm. and it it not that it explained away everything but it's like oh that's of course of course like it is a it's a class thing you know the steel drum is a lower class i mean historically comes from a lower class yeah but i I think it's oversimplifying it to put it that way because what happened that's where it came from you know, mm. it, it, but to you, you're generalizing, you could even generalize it to the point saying, well, yeah, because steel band is a gang thing, you know, because that's, that's yeah, where that's it came point. from, yep, you no, know, that's a good point. and no, it's not, it's not, it, it, it came out of that. And what happened in, as steel bands, steel bands became more, became popular, more popular, they also became more inclusive. Uh-huh. And they, 
it was a it was a, a social transformation within the culture of steel band that affected the entire society because when steel bands became inclusive and started to include lighter skinned people and Indian people and white people and middle class people and and upper class people and the steel band started to include that well hey society wasn't like that. Those people weren't interacting with each other in, out there in the world. You know, upper class society was never that inclusive. The, the, you know, white people weren't accepting black people and, and they weren't accepting the Indians. They were looking down on them, you know, upper class. And it's still, you still have that in Trinidad. You have a real class thing in Trinidad. Yeah. But the steel bands broke through that and they broke through it from below. You know, they came up and they elevated themselves and then they started including everybody else. And they transform their society. Well, not only the, not I, only themselves, but their whole society. It's really, I mean, that that's a better. That's help. You're helping me clarify my views on what class and how it relates. I mean, it is. It's not the only thing, but it is part of it. And it's in, like it bubbling up, poking up from below is something that a class that lower classes have the sort of exclusive ability to do. You can't poke up from below when you're on top. You know, like that's yeah. not how it works. Well, I, and I think also I would suggest that you consider the possibility that the reason you like it is is because it's of the, the sense of inclusiveness. Yes, that's that, it, that everyone's invited, and this is something that breaks down barriers between people. This steel band culture, mm-hmm. steel band culture is breaking down the barriers between white and black, and and Indian and Chinese, and white and Indian, and, and old and young, and, and amateur and, and prof- men and women, and amateur and professional. Yeah. You know, it's breaking down all those barriers. And, and whereas this other environment that you're talking about, that you feel in many ways less comfortable, even though you're part of it, it's like, yeah, it's very elitist. It feels that way. And it's very one, elitist. It's, it's one of the reasons. It's not like steel band music. <laughs> well, that's, it's one of the reasons I wanted to, that I, I, I feel like these, I wanted to talk with you specifically about this stuff because, um, I mean, everybody's trying to figure this this stuff out in their own way but i've been try- i've been just trying to figure out like why 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 do i feel so welcome in trinidad or in brooklyn but i feel like as the privileged white guy i have to fight harder to feel welcome in this other world that i'm you know it's just something in my head i've had this cognitive dissonance with since i yeah. th- since i went to grad school and realized like and i was the only guy at yale that played steel drums I mean, it's, it's not like I was oppressed. I didn't, it wasn't a struggle. It was just, it was like, oh, wow, that's a weird data point to notice how everybody here sees the way I, the way I've been seeing this thing I've been making yeah. assumptions about. Can you, can you yeah. talk a little bit about. Well, the, I was the only guy that played Pan at UC Berkeley too. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's been weird. <laughs> way be, back in the day, you know. It's odd to be a unicorn in some areas and just sort of notice how other people notice, <laughs> I guess. Um, when you talk about, um, was there a. Was there a conscious like you said you sort of said that um, ending slavery was like there was a story about it being twelve people in a room who made a decision um, when it, when the decision to sort of make steel bands or the idea of the steel band more inclusive was that a was there one person or one band that really started that movement or was it just an organic thing that happened naturally by the way, just to go, go back to something you just said, those 12 people, they had no power. <laughs> yeah. Those 12 people who, who decided yeah. to bring it down. Yeah. They, they, what was the, 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 the task in, in front, that they set for themselves, in front of themselves, bringing down slavery at that point, at the end of the eight, uh, 18th century, was 
would be considered like you and I sitting in a room with some friends and saying, we're going to take down the corporations. It was considered that, that, that impossible. That much of a long shot. Like, yeah, that much of a long shot when they started and they, they swayed public opinion to the point where it happened. You know, but anyway. So, what was your question? Back the, so to your, uh, in, in Trinidad, like you mentioned, that I agree. I mean, steel bands have felt inclusive, but was there there was a point where they weren't? Where, like you said, it was mostly you know ill behaving men and gangs or whatever. Was as it developed, was there one band or one group that was sort of like the band that first had women, the band that first had Indians, or like? Was there some pioneer on that front to really drive the the inclusivity, or was it something that just happened organically across the island because that's the way sometimes things happen? Well, I think to give credit where credit is due, I I can't exactly answer your question, but to to backtrack a little and give some credit where it's due, in the 1950s, before the bands became inclusive, the women went for it anyway. The women said, we want to play. They were excluded, and they formed their own bands. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole bunch of, of all-female steel bands in the 50s in Trinidad. And uh, they were, they were <laughs> in a lot of ways, the, the reason they were formed was the guys wouldn't let them play. Mm-hmm. Their parents didn't want them hanging out with those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all young women and stuff, yeah. you know, and they're all, a lot of them came from, you know, well, their families just wanted them to, to go straight and get an education and, and, and so on, you know. Yeah. So you had a girl, Pat, and there was a, a group called Dem Boys, and their sisters all wanted to play, so they called themselves Dem Girls. And there was a group from Laventil, Laventil All Girls. And uh, it was a real sort of movement. So in a, in a way, the women themselves pushed for inclusion, it, they didn't get in, They didn't just get invited in, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And I think uh, again, I think there was never. I, I don't know that there was one band that really pushed for the inclusion of women. I think women broke through on their own. It was like one here, one here, and one there, and mm-hmm. one there. You know, it was like one at a time yeah. for a while in the '60s, and then in the '70s, boom! There it had the wave came in. All of a sudden, it, they were included. Another band that that was, uh, <laughs> you know, I, there was an, another thing that happened was that kind of the light skinned middle class kids that wanted to play, they formed a group called Dixieland. Mm-hmm. You, ever, you ever seen that band? No, I haven't. And, stuff, and, and it's like, yeah, it's 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 really a trip. That Dixieland broke through a color line in a way by you know, and a, and a social class line, mm-hmm. and it was. It, it was kind of a transition to like the band starting to get all mixed up and, and, and inclusive. What um, you know, and what the fact uh, that they were there at all? There are some other notable names that I um, unicorn is the wrong word, but that are kind of out like um, you know thinking like Pat Bishop. Um, uh, is there a band called the United Sisters? Is my, is, am I remembering the right? I, I don't know that group. Not a steel band. I think they're like a Soka group, like a, maybe from the 80s or something, where, um, you know, in Calypso Rose, there, there's a few, uh, in terms of the Soka Calypso artistry that we look at, there's still, there's there's a mm-hmm. few women who have sort of, and Pat Bishop in particular is, is a really notable figure in the steel band world, if I'm not mistaken, right? Like conducting mm-hmm. a lot of large bands and, um, which... She was, 
She was very active with, uh, especially with the classical music for the for the music festivals. Yeah. But she also got involved with uh, helping bands rehearse for Panorama mm-hmm. and other things. Yeah. yeah. I, I've actually was when I was playing with Phase Two. She came by and directed the band one night. Oh wow! Back in like 1986 or something. Is she still alive? No, Pat died a few years ago. Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, can you talk about Tambu Bamboo and what? I, again, like I've heard sort of the anecdote. I think I have the like 30 second elevator pitch on what Tambu Bamboo is. But um, can you talk a little bit about the sort of like what that is if somebody hears those two words? <sighs> Well, they it, it, just what I do know about it is that the Tambu Bamboo kind of rose out of the banning of the drums, you know, mm-hmm. when they when the British band. So it all goes back to those dates we're talking about that we don't know yeah. <laughs> that we have to look up. But uh, and uh, it was like you could cut bamboo lengths to um, different lengths, bamboo to different lengths, and get different pitches. And you hit them against each other and hit them against the ground. There's also a, you ever seen there's a there's a kind of music in Venezuela that they invented with bamboo. It's it's called kitiplas, and they they have they put a brick on the ground. Uh-huh. They put bricks on the ground and they play them with they play the bamboo like like this with their fists. Kudet duget duget duget. Oh well, and they're two different pitches. And it's it's rhythmic and uh, they have lots of lots of players and they're all tuned differently and stuff. So wow. it, it's melodic, harmonic, uh, everything rhythmic. So and uh, so the the tambu bamboo was you know uh, just another form of playing drums in a way you know it was a replacement for drums, and I think the British uh, found ways of discouraging that too. They said that it was to, that it could they could use the bamboo for stick fighting. Well, and did did it was could, bullshit? But you know, <laughs> well, did did um, tambu bamboo? Um, I mean, there is a form of martial arts in Trinidad called kalenda or stick fighting. Like there is, there is that. And, um, is tambu bamboo related at all to that stick fighting in any way? Do you know? They play it. I think, I think they, they, as far as I know, let's look that one up. Yeah. All right. I believe that they, that they, uh, they, they've played for the play, play music for the kalenda. Okay. Drums and, and tam- perhaps tambu bamboo also, but I'm I'm spacing out on it right now on that connection. Yeah, me. I mean, I wanna, again, I'm asking, and I think it's I think it, the best answer yeah. sometimes is I don't know. Like that's okay. Um, uh, what and, and you've done a, <laughs> you, you, you've done a lot of work with um, I forgot with calypso, <laughs> with calypso singers and in per- like David Rudder and um, in particular your your more recent album with with Relator. Um, Calypso singing and the art of Calypso was something that was like parallel to the development of the steel band world. You know, Calypso tents during World War II, like leading up around that whole thing. Um, Can you talk a little bit about like what was happening parallel to the development of the steel band? Um, It just in the musical culture, the way songs were being written and sung in Trinidad and sort of now that they sort of connected with, I don't, maybe Lord Kitchener's not the exact moment where they met, but um, can you talk a little bit about those two tracks and sort of how they were feeding each other along the way, if at all? Oh, no, it was totally connected. I mean, the, you know, if you go back to the birth of Pan, when we're talking about just the late 1930s, early 1940s, and, uh, you know, how it was just rhythmic. Well, let's, if we look at Calypso music prior to that point, most of 
Calypso music back in the 20s and 30s was much more so about uh, just about the words than about the music. Um, often you, they would, the ex-tempo was still very much predominant in the music and, and Calypsonians would come out and their music would be very similar or the same melody, the same backing, the same, just different words, mm-hmm. you know. Ex-tempo is, you know, the band will stay the same and they, they two Calypsonians will go at it and improvise verses. Mm-hmm. But Calypso singing was very much like that too. There wasn't a, a lot of variety in the music. There wasn't a lot of different melody. There, weren't a, much, there wasn't much harmonic exploration going right. on. And, uh, you know, all this changed with Lord Kitchener. And Lord Kitchener started writing tunes in the late 30s. And he wrote some very simple tunes with two, three chords, you know, and, and simple diatonic mel- melodies. But he's a really talented musician, and he kept going, and, and uh, he played guitar, he played a cup upright bass. And in the late 40s, he went to England, and he discovered jazz. And there were a bunch of musicians in Trinidad over there that were, for, the, for that, he stayed there about 10 years mm-hmm. in England. And Russ Henderson, the piano player, Fitzroy Coleman, the guitarist, Rupert Nurse was a saxophonist, Sterling Betancourt played pan and percussion, Russell Henderson played pan also, you know. And they were, these guys, they were, and Mighty Terror was there yep. some of the time, another great composer, Calypso. And they played with the English jazz musicians. And you can hear the records that they can't come out of those studios. They're just like, they were so influenced by bebop. They brought in the whole, the the big band sound happened there in London. The Rupert Nurse and these guys and the horn players in, in London, they, they started using big horn sections on, mm-hmm. on Calypso records. Kitchener started writing long melodies with, 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 very involved sets of jazz chord changes. Sorry to interrupt. So the so the so just as like as you say, the big band scene developed. I'm thinking of the album um, uh, "London Is the Place for Me," and there's albums like "Yo, uh, It's Not Bebop in the Jungle" or "Kitchen in the Jungle," and then there's a, there's there's another there's another track that literally has the title "Bebop" in it. There's one that like the opening is like the the chords from Big Big Ben, the bang bong bong bong. You know, like. It's like he's literally quoting from the world he's in at this moment, you know, like, oh, yeah. And, um, but when you say the big band scene and, and them sort of incorporating horns there, is that then what led to like later on, like now the sort of horn sections that are the synth horn sections no, that are happening? Is that related? No, that, no, that's what I mean is what happened in the 50s is they brought the horn section sound into Calypso. Yeah, the, okay. The, yeah, the yeah. sound, the sound of the sound of big horn sections and stuff that 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 was happening in jazz big band music. They they brought that over to the calypso That's and they started so using sections. Awesome to me. I would never. I don't know why I never made that connection. That's so cool. Yeah, and the whole thing, you know, I mean, he discovered bebop, you know, and uh, and was really influenced by it. And Kitsch was going to clubs. He was playing. He was a he was a musician. You know, he would sit in on bass at mm. gigs and. You know, there's a very interesting book about him, which is not really a biography, but Anthony Joseph wrote a book called Kitsch, mm-hmm. and it's actually his doctoral thesis. Okay. <laughs> and it's a, it's a very interesting book. It's a fictional recreation of Kitsch's life, oh, but cool. uh, totally based on his life. It's it's not fiction at all, but he he makes up all these, I mean, all these things that all these real people said, 
about kitsch mm -hmm. like margie's talking you know and it's her version of it's his wife mm -hmm. you know and uh it's her version of events at a given time or something like that and it's he didn't interview her at all so right, he can't right. you know right. but it's uh it's a beautifully written book and uh very revealing about the kitchener's life over there in in england and why, why did so you go to England? These guys revolutionized the music, and the steel bands are now playing all this, the, all these tunes. Yeah. You know, because Kitsch is making recording and stuff, and the stuff hits in Trinidad, mm. even though he's in England. Well, what what was the reason? I mean, just I'm going to ask the dumb question: Why did he go to England? <laughs> um, bigger C be a little littler fish in a bigger sea. I, I mean, this, this I mean, was, this was, you said the late why, 40s. So post-World War II, right? Like the war ends, ends. Is that right? Or did he go during? Yeah, the war is over. He went over like in 48, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, um, I mean, when did like, so the war ended, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of like just the pure economics of what's happening in Trinidad after the war is over. Yeah. Like the, so a lot well, of, like, Kitsch was getting, was getting popular, but, but that doesn't mean he, he wouldn't want to go over, and look for work mm. in a in a bigger pond, you know. Mm. They go to the big city, and and there was that was the he went on the Windrush, which was you know they were just in supposedly inviting West Indians to come over and help rebuild the country, mm. and uh, they didn't treat him very well. Mm -hmm. That's a big thing that uh, a whole return to understanding that whole period now that's happening now. They're mm. talking about the Windrush generation and how they got screwed, you know. Mm. And uh, but Kitsch did well in England. He was mm -hmm. popular, mm. you know. <laughs> and uh, and then he came back and uh, tore it up. All that music in the '60s and '70s, and just inc incredible music. And you can hear all that jazz behind him, you know. When you listen to stuff like Margie and Rainerama, and you know those. In Panity Minor and stuff, you know, the, well, man, the man was a jazz musician. When did, um, when did, who was the first Calypsonian to really start speaking about Pan in their lyrics? Was it Lord Kitchener or was there, were there others along the way? I don't know. Because I don't know. He, he, he did of, the most. He, he sort he of, did, he, go ahead. He sorry. refined the art of, uh, he was the first one to really refine the art of composing a song that all the bands would play at Panorama. Yeah, he was and no he, dummy. Just to make sure, <laughs> just to make sure that they uh, that they got the message, he would sing about Pan, you know. Yeah, and uh, you know, so there was like uh, there there was Pan and Harmony. There was more Pan. There was no Pan. There was uh, Symphony in G. There was. Uh, Pan night and day, pan here to stay, pan in a minor, pan, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, the toko band, uh, on and on and on. He knew how to get his music played, just as a lesson to so, composers out but the, there. The, it, it was, you, it was, those are hits, you know? Yeah, yeah, they I mean, should be hits, you yeah. know? They but were, it was like, to the steel band, it was like, here, this yeah. is your tune for this yeah, yeah, yeah. year. <laughs> yeah. he, yes, they were, it was great music, but he also was a very good marketer. He didn't call them like, this is a song about milk. Like, it was like, no, this is about the lead pan, and you guys are going to play this at Panorama. Um, well, what, um, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer here, Andy, and I, I feel like I, I wish we could just have a regular weekly summit and just chew the fat on, on pan stuff. But, um, for folk for, I want to bring it back to like high school, Josh Quillen, 
walks in the room as you know a ninth grader and is like and my band director says this is a steel band we're gonna have a steel drum you're gonna play in a steel band now um what would you recommend for a teacher from a pedagogical standpoint say you're a band director who's like i'm a flute teacher (laughs) like i'm a flute player i got hired to teach this band this concert band i have to do orchestra on the side i have to do a study hall and i have to run a steel band what the hell am i doing you know what what would you say for somebody who's maybe completely ignorant to even what a steel band is, but has to teach it, um, or let me say this, gets to teach it, but is, has no, no idea where to start? What what advice would you give them, both just from a historical context to wrap their head around what it is they're going to be talking, what their, what their responsibilities are to a student with this instrument? Um, and then, you know, from there, what, what sort of further knowledge do you think they should start? How do, how do they go down this path, I guess, is... Uh, what do you recommend for them? You know, it's it's funny. It, it sounds like you're asking me to give advice to people that don't really want to no. do this. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, because <laughs> no, no. I mean, but, some, somebody who's, what, but, who's, who's but I, just got obliged to do it. No, well, but but I'm asking this because um, I think the reality is that there are there's a ton of band programs in the United States that have pan pan in them now, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. That's a good problem to have. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is I don't think that percussionists are always running them. I don't even think that. I mean, sometimes you just get tossed in, and sometimes as a percussionist, you don't even know what a steel drum is, you know. Yeah. Um, but you get into it, and I, I I want somebody to come into it have their what's their first experience with it and then even if they felt obliged and they didn't want to do it all of a sudden are addicted like how do we get somebody to make that switch really quick and then how do you keep them on that path well you know I, I, anybody can learn how steel band music works if you know music um you know i, I used to tell people you know you can you, you just use a there's a few different beats you can use simple stuff and you just arrange the music yourself you know nowadays that's not necessary you can just buy some scores and you can get every every level of difficulty Mm -hmm. that's out there now it's it's all available um everybody's got youtube videos up from like middle school bands to university bands to all kind of professional situations this you know uh they're so you you can watch and 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 learn and you can go hear other go check out another program that's happening there's so many school programs that are happening now you know i mean but even without leaving your house you you can start to to learn just by uh getting a score and looking at the at a video of the, of the song you know by and and seeing what's going on and listening listening and trying to uh the next thing you you should do is uh Get an, take an opportunity and go and play somewhere. You know, like get a pan. If you, you know, you take one of your pans, practice, and go to one of these workshops and play with people. Mm-hmm. You know, or go to Trinidad and play, or go somewhere and, and play. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of places you can go play Panorama now. Yeah, you know? yeah, I know. And like everybody, you know, everybody that I know plays Pan does that. You know, if they. It's like something you, you go through, you know. You, you, I see you guys doing it all the time. I've done it, you know. Yep. And you got Panorama in New York, Toronto, Montreal, London, Miami, <sighs> Miami, Saint Lucia, Trinidad, Grenada, Antigua, Saint Thomas, it's all Saint over the Croix. Place. Like I, I, pretty much anywhere <laughs> you, you go, you could probably find a, a, a Panorama band. Take somewhere. your pick. 
you know, and, and they're, they're all adapted in different ways, you know, and, and, and so on. And in terms of, you know, the difficulty of getting there or staying there and, and learning the music, some places are going to have scores in advance and some places are going to, you're just going to have to go and find somebody to show you the music, you know. Even in Trinidad, you can get the whole range of experience, well, what, <laughs> as uh, you probably know. What book, if you, your, your book list was amazingly thorough, and, I, and I, I really recommend anybody who is looking just to learn more about the history of systemic oppression in the Caribbean in particular um, and how that affected musical cultures. Like, Check out Andy's book list. It's on, he posted it on his Facebook page. But let's say like, if, you're, if you just want a good introduction to the steel band and, and sort of a basic like, good launching pad, what's a, what's a good resource? If, you, if you're going to buy one book, what's a good place to start? I don't know. I don't know what that would be. I don't, I don't think anybody's, as far as I know, uh, there, there isn't a... There are some, some things out there on how to start a steel band, but I, I, I don't know if I can say, well, well I mean, this is the one. Sorry, not like, like a method that. book. I'm saying just in terms of like the book list that you lit, if you're just kind of curious about this history at all, like what, what's a good place to start? Not necessarily how to start a steel band, but. Oh, you're talking about the, the books? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Sorry. The other thing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what? The, the book I put at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. I put it there for a reason because mm-hmm. I, I think that's what we're. It, it addresses directly what we're talking about right now. Just say that name, George name, Floyd. Name, name of that book. It was Michelle Alexander. It's called The New Jim Crow. Okay. And uh, it's already it's been out for several years, and it's already provoked a lot of the change in the in the discussion that we're having in America right now about it, about mass incarceration. Mm. It's a big reason why it's on the table. Was you know, and uh, I think it's a it's a really good place to to start um you know one that i read that just blew me away recently was the story was the book about attica mm. uh, it's called blood on the water okay. and uh catherine thompson i think is her name and and it's it uh, it's it's not what i would recommend as the next book <laughs> i'm just gonna say i'm just gonna say out of the books that you know that i read in the last year or two i mean that, that one just knocked me out mm. so much because it it, it it just tore my heart out to, to this story, mm. and uh, and if you it'll tear down any illusions you have about uh, about our government not being ready to cover up any anything that they do wrong, you know. Yeah. And uh, you know, and I I think we need to we need to start learning to how to look like look at it from other points of view. You know, I mean the. One of the books I read really recently was the Indigenous People's History of the United States, and you know, it really puts a lot of like that author. She she puts a lot of stuff in context about what's going on now, not only with African Americans and Indigenous people, but gun control, mm-hmm. and and the whole issue of of why America is armed, and what this Second Amendment, the confusion about the Second Amendment, and all that stuff has nothing to do with it. The real story of guns in America is that we're this this country was was created by colonial a settler colonialism, where they just threw the people out there and said you're the front line. Yeah, you know it wasn't a military takeover of everything. It was the, it was the settlers, the millions of people that, that just kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and uh, and they they. There was America at one point. There were states that required everybody to have a gun. Yeah, you know, 
And the reason was they had to, they had to fight Indians and they had to control black people. Yeah. And that's our history. And then we've got to start facing up to this. This is the beginning. This is how our country was created. You know, it was like everybody get a gun and be ready to catch slaves and go kill Indians. And, uh, and until we come to grips with that, I think we're, we're lost. You know, we're lost. And, and that's why all this stuff, people, they don't want to talk about slavery. They don't want to talk about slavery. Yeah, we have to talk about slavery. It's a recent subject. And, and, it's it's and like a it, person and a half ago. Like it's not that long ago, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's and, one and a half people ago. <laughs> and, and Jim, Jim Crow is like, you know, I was, I, it was happening when I was a kid still, yeah. you know, and we still, we just got another form of Jim Crow now with the war on drugs and all this stuff. It's a war on black people. Yeah. I mean, and I, that's I, what, that's why what Michelle Alexander is, is addressing. Basically, the new Jim Crow is the war on drugs, is what she's yeah. the argument that she's putting out. Well, I think your your piece of advice about going and playing in a band, I think, you know, when I think about what changed my worldview, it's not like when I first played in a steel band or first started drilling a steel band in Brooklyn that I was like, oh, cool, I know everything there is to know about race relations in this country, and of course, it's all related to slavery. Like, it doesn't come that quickly as a from it didn't come that quickly for me anyway. Um, mm. But I was sitting in a pan yard and watched cops right, walk right by me in Brooklyn and go right to the 13-year-old girl who's just pla- practicing double tenors and search her bag, you know, like, you know, and walk right by me and then just keep searching everybody's bag. I'm the guy probably with the, the contraband in my bag, you know, anyway, and, right. and um, I see it and it's like I know what it looks like and I think it's it would be – I. Th- I wonder how many people's worldviews would just be changed by just witnessing it, let alone – I mean forget about whether or not I should have ethically stood up and been like f- fought racism by confronting that cop in that moment. Just yeah. observing what that looks like I think is really important. And if you can't just spend the 100 bucks to get on a, on a bus and come to Brooklyn over Labor Day and just sit in a yard – I'll pay. I'll give you the hundred bucks. I'll pay for it. How's that sound? Mm-hmm. Five people. If five of you want to come. I'll each give you a hundred bucks. Come on out and just sit <laughs> in the yard because that is going to teach you as much, if not more, than about how just even about how race relations are happening now. Like, forget about what happened hundreds of years ago. Just watch this interaction. Watch the cops yeah. walk right by me. I'm the only white guy in the yard. Right. Like, this is true. This is a true thing that happens. Yeah. And let's. It is related to Jim Crow. It's related to slavery. It's related to all that stuff. But it's been so far removed. But to now, if now it's not like, you know, they're coming in and they're, they're, the oppression isn't slave owners on a horse. It's them, it's cops just walking by me. That's what it is. And it's related, you know, it's so hard, but you can't, I don't know how to teach people that. I don't know how to convince Mm -hmm. people to believe that until they see it for themselves, you know? Yeah. In a way, I think at the same time, we, we need to get educated. You know, we need to, like, educate ourselves somehow and, yeah. and, and to understand where we come from and, and what our real history is and, and to stop listening to this bullshit that, they, that, that we tell ourselves about ourselves, what a great country we are. And uh, um, at the same time, we... We are this. We don't. Let's not forget that why we're playing in the steel band. You know, it's it's. We love the music, but we also love something else about it, and it's the way it brings people together. 
and the, and the way it breaks down all those barriers. And, and, and this is in, you know, we, we who play in steel band music know that we have something special there, you know, that, yeah. that, that we're onto something. I think everybody feels it, you know, that it's, it's, it's not the same as everything else. I mean, music is that on a general level, yeah. like singing in choirs and, and, and playing in a batucada and all these big ensembles and stuff like that, and yeah. orchestra, orchestral, any kind. It, but, you know, we have something unique with the steel band. And, and when, one of the things when you said, I want you to come and see the cop walk by me, you know, to see the real Brooklyn, I would also say, I want you to see, look at this band. You yeah, know? of course. Like, yes. Look at these, I, look sorry, at, I should have stated the obvious thing, Andy. Like, that's that's. Look at all these young people playing music together, and look at at, at, at all the inclusiveness of what's what's happening. When what, mm-hmm. that that you can come from outside with all your white privilege, and you can still walk in it and be part of this band. I I know? like and my my instincts. Be a professor from Yale, you know. Yeah, totally. And I I have these <laughs> I have these instincts when I hear. You know, I understand why if I hear somebody say – if somebody hears somebody say something maybe uh, racially insensitive, why it feels good to yell at them and call them a racist or a bigot. But because of – like I'm biased I think because of my experience in the steel band where my instinct isn't to yell that at somebody. My instinct is to say, oh, just come with me. Come with me. There's, we're gonna get, I'm going to get you some corn soup and I'm going to introduce you to Dougie and we're just going <laughs> to chat. Like, you know, and, yeah. and, and it's not going to solve everything now. But just trust me. You're, you you may think twice before you say that thing again, and and mm-hmm. you're gonna love. Like you haven't had corn soup. Like I wonder if it's that simple. Like I don't know. Maybe it is. You know. But but that's been my instinct. And I think the when you put your finger on the sort of as it relates to class and race and all of the things that inclusiveness is at the root of all of this in terms of the steel band. And and I, I just really. I appreciate you talking with me about this stuff today. Mm. It, re- it really sort of, for me, was a nice 45 minutes to just highlight and draw a circle around that mm-hmm. that nugget of truth that I think we got to keep, you know, we gotta keep my, thinking about, you know. One of my favorite funny moments in my life happened out on a Savannah in Trinidad. It was in between the bands, like 1986 at Panorama. And the, the backstory, I was being interviewed by Dalton Narine for Trinidad Television. It was live on TV, all right? And uh, <laughs> the backstory is I was playing with Phase 2 and Renegades. And when I went over by Renegades Yard, I was immediately introduced to a guy called Dr. Rat. And, uh, uh, you know, the, and it was like he's in charge of the pan yard. He takes care of everything. You, anything, you got any problem, you go to Dr. Rat. You need anything, you go to Dr. Rat. He's here. To, he's here to make sure you're cool, you know. And uh, so I had protection, you know. But <laughs> no, but everybody had protection, you know. What I mean, Doctor Rat was in charge of the place, but you know, every every pat, band has a Doctor Rat that that takes care That's of everybody. The, yeah. Well, <laughs> it turns out Doctor Rat was like had a he was this tall Rasta cat, and uh, and it turned out he had quite a reputation. I mean, he was really an old style pan man he'd been he'd been to prison for various things violence and drugs and all kind of shit you know and stuff. he had he had quite a history behind him you know mm-hmm. and everybody knew about it too you know he'd already been been to prison and everything like that so i mean <laughs> but we got to be pretty tight 
friends, you know. I was there every night and stuff like that. And, and uh, so I, while I was being interviewed on live television, um, my buddy, Dr. Rat, shows up behind me and throws a big arm around me <laughs> on live TV. <laughs> and it was like, the next, and I didn't even think about it, you know. And it was like this next day, everybody was like, oh, man, the whole country saw you and Dr. Rat are like that, boy. <laughs> You know, one of the no- notorious people in Trinidad. That's awesome. You know, a real bad John, old time. <laughs> the baddest bad John of all the steel mm-hmm. bands, you know, mm-hmm. one of those guys. So, And in the old days, there were, there were guys in the bands that had that rep. You know, there yeah. was like the enforcer on a team, but they were like in, the enforcer with a knife. Well, there know, was a guy or, in phase two when I played that... Um it was only after I was there for three and a half weeks, and about two weeks into it, he was iron, playing iron. His name was Mikey. I don't know if I don't know if he's still there, but he was like the head iron guy Th- that year. This is two thousand two, and he just one time just turned around and said hello, and he pulled up his shirt, and there was a gun, and he said, "If you need anything, let me know." And he goes, <laughs> and he said anything, yeah. and I and I it was a, I'll kill somebody. It was for my you. first time ever. I had never seen a gun <laughs> that close before, and I was like, yeah. Uh, I just need the notes for the jam section. That's all I need, yeah. Mikey. I don't need a. <laughs> I had you know? that, the place I experienced that first was South Africa, mm. and I started playing there, mm. and I started realizing that occasionally the the driver that was driving us around might have a gun. Yeah, some of these guys were well, there, carrying. There's some real stuff going on in Trinidad right now. I mean, there's there's a lot of unrest. I think there were some killings that happened in Port of Spain. Some cops shot some guys and. I know a few guys that play in the pan world that are cops and I've been texting with them all day yesterday and it, they're saying it's this one guy I know who was saying it's the worst he's ever seen in downtown like uh but man it's uh anyway it's terrible it's chaos the violence it's, thing is so terrible it's chaos you know? and I um but man I um we're not going to solve that in the next 5 minutes but um Andy I am I'm I'm eternally grateful for this is the hat trick now of our of our, our of our podcasts and I'm I'm really grateful for your time. I think this one in particular will be a good resource for anybody who just like has no clue what's going on, why the steel band came to what it is now. Maybe. <laughs> they'll be real confused they'll, after this well, hour. But I think in a good way. <laughs> but in a good way, I think they will I think you know the number of times people come up to me at a at a so percussion concert and say, "I know that st- I love steel drums. They come from Hawaii." You know, and oh, yeah. it's not a, and again, it's like, it's not a bad thing. Like they're not being mean or stupid. It's just like, oh, whoa. Okay. All right. Uh, you would have been closer if you said, I love steel drums from Oklahoma. Like that would have <laughs> been closer geographically than Hawaii. Um, but, it, but if anything, it makes people understand that this history is way more complicated and nuanced and messy than just a flowered shirt on a cruise ship, you know? And, Mm. uh, I think that's important. So thank you for that, buddy. I'll let you go. And until next time, I don't know what we'll chat about next time, but I'll look forward to it regardless. All right, man. All right. Thank you, Andy. Take it easy. Talk to you. Bye-bye. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by liquid drum, liquidrum.com, L I Q U I D R U M.com down in Waco, Texas, hilarious percussion videos, good pedagogy. Uh, check them out. Liquidrum.com. Uh, also, DunleavyPans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y-Pans.com. Check them out. Kyle builds all the drums that I perform and teach on. And finally, PanInMotion.com. Uh, check them out. They're good. They're, they're a great advocacy group um, spreading the information about Pan all around the world. Check them out. PanInMotion.com. All right. Enjoyed it. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.